Last Sunday was the capstone of our summer book series on reading for resistance and resilience in which we had congregational conversations around George Orwell's 1984, Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale, and Octavia Butler's Parable of the Talents. In particular, last week, we explored the ways that Butler's science fiction novels were birthed out of a deep tension between dystopian realism and utopian hope. So on this Labor Day Sunday, I had planned originally to invite, to invite us to reflect on the Fight for 15, a, a current goal of the labor movement to secure both a nationwide minimum wage of $15 and the right of low-wage workers to organize unions. However, as you can see from the sermon title, our congregational conversations this summer about dystopian fiction have inspired me to imagine what might be possible beyond a few dollar an hour increase in the minimum wage, even if even that is something that seems to be uh, vociferously opposed by some segments of our populace. Part of what can hold us back is not only a lack of political will, but also a failure of imagination, uh, a sense of inertia which insists that the way things are is the way things have to be. But if we zoom out historically even a little, we can remind ourselves that many movements toward freedom and equality, the abolition of slavery in 1865, only 150 years ago, Securing the right to vote for women in 1920, less than a 100 years ago. Legalizing same-sex marriage in 2015, only two years ago. Those were all goals that large swaths of the population said are absolutely impossible and will cause all sorts of chaos until just before they became a reality. It's also significant to remember that some of our UU forebears were on the front lines for each of those movements for social change. But that's in the past, and as I tell my seminary students when I teach UU history and polity, I don't want you to stop with learning about the successes of our past. I want our past to inspire you to be part of making the UU history that future generations will learn about. Here's one example of what I mean. In the 18th century, a a few years before the founding of this country, our universalist forebears were making an argument that was incredibly radical in their day. It may seem, you know, fairly blasé to us, but in their day, the argument that all people would be universally saved in the next world was incredibly radical. Rejecting a Calvinist theology of predestination, they preached that a loving God would never punish someone eternally for what at most could be finite sins in this world. Over time, the focus of universalism shifted from a universal salvation in the next world to loving the hell out of this world through universalists like Clara Barton founding the Red Cross and many other examples. In that spirit, what might a universalist ethic for the 21st century look like? What might help us move toward achieving the lofty goals of our UU6 principle, the goal of a world community with peace, liberty, and justice, not merely for some, but for all? I invite you to consider that such a 21st century universalism might be built on at least three key pillars. One, universal health care. 
two, universal education through college, and three, a universal basic income. Those may sound like utopian pipe dreams, and the political divides in our nation make it clear that achieving such goals would be far from simple, but they are no more audacious than the idea of universal salvation in the 18th century, of universal freedom through the abolition of slavery in the 19th century, of universal suffrage um, for women in the 20th century, and universal marriage rights for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender citizens in the early 21st century. We stand on the shoulders of giants, ancestors who helped shift history toward freedom and equality. And now it is our turn to find out if collectively we have the fortitude to bequeath to future generations a better world than the one we've inherited. Or will we stand aside and leave them a worse world? Since this is Labor Day weekend, I want to invite us to reflect on how we might reimagine the future of labor. If this sermon leaves you a little curious to learn more, the best resource I've found on this topic is called Universal Basic Income. It's a book published this year from Harvard University Press by Philippe Van Paris and Yannick Vanderbork. I know you've read all their previous books um, from both of those. Uh, They're respectively an economics professor and a political science professor. Now, various theorists have written about the advantages and disadvantages of universal basic income since the late 18th century. But really, how many of you have even heard about a universal basic income before, like right now? Okay, quite a few of you. Just starting in the last few years is when I've started people, I've heard people talk about it in a way that wasn't just like, that's crazy talk, and more like, no, this might actually have some merit. So there's a growing number of serious proponents of what could be called a regular cash income paid to all citizens of this country on an individual basis without any sort of mean tests or work requirements. You just get it. It's a little bit of a paternalism because you're not just giving people a lump sum. You're giving it to them once a month. But um, related to this idea, a few years ago, I did a lot of work in the area of vocational discernment, a study of how one chooses a career or a calling. Two of the most frequently quoted pieces of advice in that area are these. One, the place that you are called to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. The place where your deep gladness meets the world's deep hunger. The second is, don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come fully alive and do that. Because what the world needs is more people who are engaged, who are fully alive. I find both of those quotes to be deeply inspiring. I've found them to be helpful sources of guidance for both myself and many others over the years at various points. But I've also started to push back at the unarticulated privilege underneath those two ideas. Those two pieces of advice, for all their wisdom, fail to acknowledge that our economy is not currently set up to allow everyone to get paid a living wage to do their dream job. But as we explored a few weeks ago in a sermon on a brief history of tomorrow, there are some coming shockwaves to our economy that have already started to deeply impact us. Climate change, forcing us to recognize that there are ecological limits. Two, growing wealth inequality. And three, the increased automation from robots and other forms of artificial intelligence. And this is another point where a brief look backward can remind us of how much change is possible in the future because of how much change has already happened in the past.
Beginning in the early 19th century and continuing for over 100 years, working hours in this country were gradually reduced, cut in half according to most accounts, through the labor movement, which pushed back through collective organization against the exploitation of labor by employers. And in the 19th century, extrapolating from their successes, if you go back and read the best economists, the most vocal public intellectuals of the time, regularly predicted that well before the end of the 20th century, a golden age of leisure would would arise. So certainly by 2017, we're living in that uh, golden age of leisure, right? No one would have to work more than two hours a day, is what we were told. For those forced to earn a living through alienated labor, ten, a 10-hour work week would mean that they would act, people would actually have time to pursue the American dream of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness instead of returning home from work too exhausted to do anything but rest enough to drag yourself out of bed to go back to work the next day. However, instead of the utopia that our 19th century forebears imagined us inheriting, here in the early 21st century, many of us find ourselves in the middle stages of a growing corporate dystopia in which the highest uh, court in our land has declared that corporations are people, and many of us actual people work not a 10-hour week, but at least a 10-hour day, building to a 50- or 60-hour work week. But turning again to some of our best science fiction writers to help us imagine of what might a different future look like, Arthur C. Clarke, he's the co-author of 2001, A Space Odyssey, he said in an interview around the time that that film was released that the goal of the future is full unemployment so that we can play. In other words, let the machines take care of feeding and clothing us, building our homes, cooking our awesome meals, making our cars and phones and other devices, and driving us around town, handling our medical, legal, and administrative needs. We humans can then spend our time on creative pursuits, leisure, play, scientific research, travel, entertainment, new business ventures, taking care of the sick, helping each other out with various ideas and projects. Of course, 2001 A Space Odyssey, for those of you who have seen it, is also a partially a cautionary tale about how automation can go awry, right? Open the pod bay doors, Hal, right? I'm sorry, Dave. I can't do that. I know that you and Frank are planning to disconnect me, and I'm afraid that I can't allow that to happen. Although you took many precautions in the pod against me hearing you, I can read your lips. It goes on from there, of course. Despite fears of the machines taking over, Clark also saw a huge boon that was potentially possible to human happiness that could come from automation. Around the same time um, in 1967, actually a year before 2001, A Space Odyssey was released into theaters, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. published his final book, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos? or community. In that book, he wrote, I am now convinced that the simplest approach will prove to be the most effective. The solution to poverty is to abolish it directly by a now widely discussed measure, the guaranteed income. The dignity of the individual will flourish when the decisions concerning his life are in his own hands, when he has the assurance that his income is stable and certain, and when he knows that he has the means to seek self-improvement. So the idea is there's also far less bureaucracy. You just give it to everybody. Like, you just give the same thing to everybody as opposed to working about figuring out who deserves it. 
The core concern is not to redistribute income so that everyone has an equal amount. Rather, it is to structure our tax system so that everyone has at least a basic minimum as part of living into what we use call our first principle, the inherent worth and dignity of every person. Currently, the metaphor most often used to describe how we as a society seek to meet this goal is a social safety net so that there are programs to catch you in case of emergency. But almost anyone who's tried to use those systems will tell you how complex and demoralizing it can be to try and navigate our social service programs. Proponents of a universal basic income invite us to consider an alternative metaphor. Instead of a net, what if we gave every citizen a solid floor? There's no ceiling, but the ceiling is tied to making sure before anyone can just earn as much as they want, everyone has to have a certain basic minimum. If you're wondering what such a floor might look like, to take the most recent calculations from this book from Harvard Press uh, using the year 2015, a universal basic income for the U.S. might look something like a monthly um, payment of a little more than $1,100 for a total of $14,000 a year, so that at least no one would be beneath the poverty line. Over time, a universal basic income would need to be keyed to an average index over several years to keep up with inflation. Again, one of the greatest advantages of a universal basic income would be to give every citizen a sturdy floor from which to operate, giving all workers some flexibility in not just having to take whatever desperate, lousy job comes across, to have some flexibility, to have employers actually have to offer a decent enough living that makes it worth taking that job. A universal basic income would also provide at least a partial counterbalance, principally, not only for women, but principally for women, who for years have done an unfair share of unpaid housework, childcare, volunteering, you know, not without getting compensated at all. As to whether all of this is a desirable goal, my single favorite quote on this topic is from the economist John Kenneth Galbraith, who said that leisure, this idea of leisure is a very peculiar thing. Leisure is apparently very good for the rich, quite good for Harvard professors, and very bad for the poor. May we be part of building a better world with more freedom for all. There is, of course, much more to be said about the promises and perils of living into what a new universalism for the 21st century might look like. But my goal has mainly been to remind us on this Labor Day weekend that the way things are are very much not how they have always been, nor how they must be in the future. In that spirit, tomorrow is Labor Day. It's a holiday established by the federal government uh, to celebrate the labor movement's role in securing rights for workers. In a few moments, we'll invite it to sing along in what may be the most famous anthem of the labor movement, Solidarity Forever. But first, especially since we've been reflecting on our UU heritage, I want to remind us just a little bit of this song's deep resonance for Unitarian Universalism. The lyrics to Solidarity Forever were written by the labor activist Ralph Shapelin in 1915, although we're going to be singing a few additional verses that were written over time as the labor movement has become increasingly inclusive of all workers. Chaplin said his lyrics to the tune of John Brown's body. It's a marching song written by the Union soldiers during the Civil War about the radical abolitionist John Brown. 
Some of you may recall that of the secret six who helped fund and supply John Brown's 1859 raid on the armory at Harper's Ferry just about 20 minutes from here, of those secret six, five were Unitarians, two were Unitarian ministers. Among those five was Samuel Howe, the husband of another of our Unitarian ancestors, Julia Ward Howe. One evening after visiting Civil War camps and hospitals, Julia awoke in the middle of the night and was inspired to write new lyrics to that tune of John Brown's body, verses that became the battle hymn of the Republic. When the Civil War began, it was far from clear in the North if the fight were only to preserve the Union or if it were also to end slavery. Julia's Battle Hymn of the Republic, written in November 1861, more than a year before Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation on January 1st, 1863, um, Julia's lyrics were part of many factors catalyzing popular support for using the Civil War as an opportunity to end slavery once and for all in this country. So as we prepare to sing this famous labor anthem, I invite you to remember the historic echoes to John Brown's body, to the Battle Hymn of the Republic. As we sing, open the imagination of your mind, open the compassion of your heart that what might become possible in this nation and around the world if we join together in solidarity of ever-increasing circles of inclusion. You'll note as we say, we're going to sing all the verses. You'll note as we get to voice, verse 4, is about women. I'll let those who are female identified uh, choose uh, if, if you'll sing that verse. Uh, and then we'll sing, I think, 5 and 6 together. Uh, let's rise and body your spirit. Let's sing Solidarity Forever. <laughs> 